DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Omar. Thanks, Chris. We're on Chapter 8, The Political Community of the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. The political community, that in itself has a lot of meaning for folks, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we've gotten finally that to politics, right? We talked about family, we talked about work, we've talked about economics, uh, and now we're talking about politics, about the political community, and and this is usually where people go, st- you know, first when they talk about the social teaching of the church, and understandably so. Like the previous chapters, chapter eight in the political community starts with the biblical aspect. So we talk about God and God's dominion. There is the first part. I think one of the major themes here in this chapter is. That the the state exists, right? States are important. Governments are important. Uh, certainly, the social teaching doesn't advocate a kind of anarchy by any stretch of the imagination. States have a role and an important role in the lives of humanity and society, and ordering it in a way that helps protect the weak and safeguards rights, etc. Uh, but there's this theme, even here in the biblical aspects at the beginning of the chapter. There's this theme that you have to be wary of the state. You have to be watchful of the state. Because at the very beginning of the Old Testament, through those chapters of of Kings and Samuel, when you think about the story of Samuel and David and the rest of them, the theme always keeps coming back in those books of the Old Testament of, of governments, of kings, of states, of taking too much power from God, of trying to replace God, of trying to, to be God for the people. And that's the singular danger of the state. The state will try inevitably to try to take the place of God in our lives. And we have to try very hard to, to keep that from happening. It seems to go back to the even the original temptation in mm. the garden yeah. where you are tempted to have the power and be able to have the, the ability to be able to control things yourself. Yeah, that's right. So even the po- the political state, no matter how big it gets, still has its roots in the human heart. Exactly. I mean, that that's exactly what I mean. We've mentioned several times in this series the the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said at the the you know the the heart of the problem of the 20th century. And you look at all the terrible ills of the 20th century, the wars and the pestilence and the terrible things that happened. At the heart of all of it was this idea that you could fight the battle between good and evil in the realm of politics. That somehow, right, that if we just elected the right guy or put the right government in place, then all our problems would go away. That was the great lie of the 20th century. And that's the lie of the serpent in the garden as well. 
you have control over good and evil. In reality, Solzhenitsyn says elsewhere, he says, in reality, uh, that line between good and evil is a line written brightly within human hearts. There's the, you know, the, the sense of, of the conscience, that, that struggle of the conscience between good and evil in the human heart. That that's where it's really at. That struggle within the human heart can only be adjudicated, can only be penetrated by the loving God who made that heart. And so when we look at the, the Old Testament, and we look into the time of Jesus and the political authority, and we see that this, is a, that this answer, this approach to politics, has to far, start first with uh, an appreciation, a relationship with the God who gave us the human heart. Galatians 2.20, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Mm-hmm. Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? Absolutely, uh, from the top to bottom. And so th- that's why as we approach this question of politics, um, it's so very important that Catholics try as much as we can. And I've, you know, I've been succumbed to this myself, uh, so I accuse myself in saying this. But we have to try really hard to to, to try to shy away from uh, political party, you know, loyalty or I- ideologies, or try to avoid getting caught up in, in certain media trends or, or any number of things, because all of those things take away from our first. Uh, relationship, and that's a relationship with, with the God that, that, that created us, which gave us the society. Because if that's not right, right, if, if we are not rooted in Jesus first and foremost, then we're liable to get some of these questions of, of the weak and of the poor and, and all the rest of it wrong. It is interesting when we look at the lives of the saints and some unlikely saints that could surprise us in their political activity. I'm thinking in particular of Catherine of Siena the great doctor, mystical doctor of the church, who not only was involved in church issues concerning the pontificate Mm -hmm. in in Avignon, but she also called out emperors Mm -hmm. for their activity and how they treated not only one another in different governing situations, but also how they took care of the poor and how they took care of others. And this is a young girl. Right. And we see this all the way back in the early Christian communities. You look at somebody like St. Ambrose of Milan, for instance, who refused the emperor Theodosius, who refused him to receive a communion because of crimes he'd committed against the people in Greece. Or uh, you consider the, the various popes who, who forced uh, the king or the emperor to, to, to kneel in the snow and to beg for forgiveness um, uh, for having violated the church's teaching. All these things right, are, are part of the tradition of the church that says uh, the church has a role, the faith has a role <laughs> right, in the political sphere. So that's another major theme here. This notion, the very Western notion, unfortunately, now, a very secular notion now, that faith has no role in the public square. That's, one, you know, foreign to human uh, experience through the millennium, but it's also against church teaching. The faith has to be part of the public square, has to be part of our conversations in life. We, we have to bring our faith uh, to our life because our, our faith forms our conscience, and, and the conscience is where, again, we meet that battle between good and evil. I like the way you said that. I mean, because the very essence, we bring ourselves mm-hmm. into that, that arena, into the, the world that surrounds us, that civil interaction that we have with others. We bring ourselves, and we profess who we are in our creeds. So by not bringing our faith, we're not bringing truly ourselves into the arena. Yeah. What are we bringing then? 
Exactly. We're, we're bringing ideology, right? We're, we're bringing a, a party politics. We're, we're bringing a whole host of things. If we're not bringing ourselves, if we're not bringing our conscience, we're violating our own consciences when we're uh, a representative or when we're voting. So, yeah, you're yeah, absolutely 100% right. We, we bring ourselves, and that self has to be transformed by Christ Jesus. That's what being a Christian involved with politics means, is a self transformed by the love of Christ. That's what we bring to politics, and that's something that we bring uniquely, Right. Uh, no other American citizen in the, in the sense that you know, uh, they might be concerned for the common good, they might be concerned for very practical matters. We may agree with them on a number of various things, but as Christians, we bring something unique to the public sphere when we come forward and bring ourselves transformed by Christ. Mm. In the compendium, it would have a subsection called Social Life Based on Civil Friendship. Yes. Civil Friendship. Talk to us about that, Omar. Yeah, you know, we... Um, in America, our tradition, and it's an understandable tradition, comes from the thinking of the Enlightenment and John Locke and, and Hume and, and Hobbes and others. There's a tendency to think that the, the meaning of political life is to, it starts, right, with human rights. Right? And that's our Constitution. So our mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence is the same thing, right? Inalienable rights, that's where it starts. Unfortunately, the problem is when that's the focus, when our rights are focused, then the purpose of government is to uh, protect our rights from our our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Uh, When that becomes the focus, the state all of a sudden exists to protect us from each other, and that's its sole purpose. And and that's that's an anemic way of looking at government, an anemic way of looking at the state. In reality, says the compendium, the principle upon which society is based is not my rights, but rather my friendship with you, our community, our, our um, uh, ability to talk to each other in kindness and in civility. And this is what the Compendium says. This is what it says in paragraph 390. The sphere of rights, in fact, is that of safeguarded interests, external respect, the protection of material goods, and the distribution according to established rules. The sphere of friendship, on the other hand, is that selflessness, detachment from material goods, giving freely and inner acceptance of the needs of others. Civil friendship understood in this way is the most genuine actualization of the principle of fraternity, which is inseparable from that of freedom and equality. You want freedom and equality? Uh, then let's start with friendship, with fraternity. Fraternity you know, means brotherhood, from the Latin word for brother, frater. Um, we need to start with that principle of solidarity, that we're connected with each other. That's where true society starts. The great Jesuit John Courtney Murray uh, would say this in his book about America. We hold these truths. It's an earth-shattering book he wrote many years ago where he said, you know, our society is founded first in the notion that we have some sort of connection with each other, not on rights, right, which we have to be afraid about. Uh, losing, or on material goods, we have to be afraid about losing, but rather on the fact that that we're brothers, brothers in Christ, brothers in God. Talk to us about the importance of gift as well, our understanding of what an authentic gift is. Well, that's that's goes even deeper. Then, uh, if we start with the sense of fraternity and brotherhood, uh, we realize then that the, the what we're provided in our our society, the the things we do have, the the, the rights that are recognized. Uh, these are gifts from our brothers, um, uh, gifts from the other members of society, and not 
things necessarily that I get to take from everybody. And the reason that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind is because it, it, it's an attitude that fosters a sense of civility and fr- uh, fraternity and friendship. Oftentimes when I talk about this, this logic of gift, this sense of gift, I, I, I give the analogy of, of uh, myself with my son. I'm an authority over my son, right? My, my son is supposed to do what I tell him to do. I go t- tell him to clean his room. He's supposed to clean his room. And there's a sense that, well, I shouldn't be too overjoyed by the fact if he cleans his rooms because he did what I told him to do. That's what he's supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that I can't be thankful that he cleaned his room because I asked him to do it. It, it doesn't mean that I, I can't be thankful for, for his being an obedient, loving son, even though that's what he's supposed to be, right? By approaching that relationship, my, myself with my son, and the sense of gift, of, of thankfulness, of gratuitousness, which that's the word that Pope Benedict uses in his great encyclical Caritas and Veritate, by approaching it with a sense of thankfulness, of gift, uh, I, I'm approaching it respecting the person for who and what they are, because they could have chosen otherwise, and, and appreciating the fact that they've chosen the good for themselves and the good for me as well. Thanksgiving is also something that the Catholic in particular should be very aware of that we practice at, at the very, very least once a week and uh, what is also known in the Greek as Eucharist. Yes. And so that moment when we have the offertory become this moment where a plate is passed around and we give an envelope or maybe even now that it automatically comes out of our checking <laughs> right, account. Yeah. But for the early church, the offertory was that time when they would come together and you would give what you could, whether it was a tent or it was baked goods or it was something, to be able to help others in that civil friendship, in that community of friendship. That's right. And that's actually the reality in, in places like Africa right now, where they have these very long liturgies. You know, the, a mass in certain parts of Africa can take two hours. I mean, you don't blink an eye at that. And when they bring forward the gifts of the offertory, they bring forward not just you know money or cash, but they're bringing goats and chickens and livestock and the fruit of of, uh, of their their labor, etc. And immediately, as soon as mass is over with, the poor line up there, and the priest is there, and the deacons and helpers and catechists are responsible for distributing those goods to the poor. That's that's that sense of of gift and the logic of gift and that sense of fraternity that the church can help bring to a society. This is also part of, you know, once we understand the sense of fraternity and gift, we realize the unique role, therefore, that Christianity can bring to a a society and and, and how Christianity can help society become good because in Christianity, uh, we believe that we actually are our brother's keeper, that they are, in fact, our brother and we are their keeper. And so, therefore, uh, we have this moral obligation to, to give of ourselves and to accept from others as a gift. Help us to understand what is authentic or legitimate authority. Right. Well, the the church is going to speak often about uh, the authority of the state and that, um, you know, St. Paul talks about the importance of of understanding the authority of the state and following the state uh, in that authority. Authority is an important thing, but the church also teaches that authority comes only as a participation in God's authority. In other words, the the state's authority we, we should follow, but it's... That that it has an authority is effective only because God has allowed it to be so. Uh, this is why, therefore, if the state should overextend its authority and begin to, again, try to take the place of God, right, or ask us to do immoral things, it's fully within the right. In fact, it may even be the obligation of the Catholic Christian to say no to the state. 
this is not a, a, a sense of being unpatriotic. This is not a sense of being a, a, you know, treasonous. Uh, this is, in fact, being fully faithful to what, what the state should be because one is respecting the authority of God, uh, which is why the state has the authority in the first place, when one says no for the sake of what's good and true and just. For those listening in America, this might be a good time to step back from our own experience mm. and look at how this can look in other parts of the world, for example, in Poland. Yes. The right to resist. Now, that seems very clear to us because we, as Americans who remember back in the, <laughs> in the, 19, the late 1980s, early 90s, would say absolutely they did have a right to resist some of the movements of that particular state. Absolutely, and because of that, they they had the right, and then they also had the obligation to, to to step up and resist. I mean, that's that's part of what we're called to do, and that that's a very difficult choice in a, in a great many situations. But we we have to do it when the authority of the state loses its moral force, when it violates the God's law and the natural law, and we find ourselves in the situations where we have to resist. We need to be very sure that, that as we're discerning how to resist and when and, and whether to resist, that we're rooted in the sacramental life, that we're rooted in the teachings of the church, because it's only too easy for us to find some, some reason to disobey the state, right? The tendency is to try to buck authority, especially in the West where freedom and autonomy and my own will are, are always so, so constant theme in our consciences. So it's, it's very important that we be clear that we're founding our decision to resist based on the church's teaching, which is, again, why the, or how the church really can help us be better citizens. Would an important caveat be that we're not basing this on the pain we may be feeling mm. individually? Yes. Whether financial or, heaven forbid, some other type of pain that is occurring to us or our family, given the law's that are being brought forward by the state. Yes, absolutely. And this is a part of, um, of where that logic of gift comes, comes forward, right? The, the logic of gift provides, a, gratuitousness provides a generosity. I mean, the, that, that word gratuitousness, which is there in the compendium and was used by Pope Benedict XVI, in English we think of gratuitous as something that's over the top, right? It, we, we want a sense of generosity. So even if it does hurt us, right, mm-hmm. even if there is discomfort and suffering on our part, um, for the sake of the common good, for the sake of the community, we can take on that discomfort, that burden, for the sake of the betterment of the whole. Uh, and there's nothing wrong about that. That's not communism we're talking about. That's not socialism. That's, that's the early church, right? That's what we read in the Acts of the Apostles, where we, we give up a little bit of something for our own comfort for the sake of the others. And even if it is demanded of us by the state, right? even if the state says, it's not your choice to give up this burden, we're going to tell you you're going to be burdened this way, we're going to tell you you're going to give this up, again, within reason, right? Uh, and that's why we have to discern these carefully. But within reason, that's an opportunity for us to live up to the faith we profess. So just to reiterate that if the state is asking the citizenry to do something that is morally abhorrent, that would lay the foundation, not necessarily our personal pain, right. but it it violates the tenets of a uh, our moral foundations. 
Exactly right. Now, th- there people are going to start bringing up things like taxation and, and how much can the state tax and uh, what's the difference between taxation and stealing. You, you hear uh, – I've heard Catholics even say – make this argument. What's the difference between taxation and stealing? Uh, well, the fact of the matter, Thomas Aquinas has uh, – one of them, the Compendium talks about it too um, – uh, there's nothing wrong with taxation. Taxation isn't stealing. There is a sense, right, according to the social teaching of the church, that uh, when the state taxes, it's it's taking from the citizenry uh, what's necessary for securing the safety of the people, right? Uh, or in our country, like building roads and communication and, and doing other things that are necessary for the betterment of the, of the common good. There's nothing wrong with taxation in, in and of itself. It, there can be the point, however, where... Uh, the state takes too much or demands things too unfairly. Or, you know, we're recording this at a time when the IRS is under some scrutiny because of the way it's targeting certain groups. If that taxation is punitive, if it if it goes after the weak, that's when you begin to understand there's something wrong. That's where you begin to question and, and perhaps resist. Um, and and, and it's that sense of caring for the weak that that moral authority really exists. So the compendium is going to say uh, just that very same thing, that when the state begins to enact laws that hurt the weak, and, and this, you know, we can talk about abortion as the example par excellence, when the state is failing to take care of the weak, that's when we know there's something seriously wrong. The weakest of the unborn, the weakest of the elderly and ill and... and, and, and uh, and dying, the, the, the weakest of, of the, the single mother and the weakness of, of the immigrant, the weakness of any of the various people in our society, when, uh, when they are being trampled upon, that's when we know the state is not fulfilling its obligations. Omar, th- this is one of those areas in which prudential judgment is an important aspect of our discernment and taking these into consideration because, you know, f- from the examples you just cited, the, the care of the weak, there are those who would say on one side of the, say, the health care issue and an, an overall health care plan mm. you know, sponsored and, and run by the government, that that would take care of that need for all the week. It would also be said on the other side of that issue, but because it's so large, it can't possibly take care of the needs. And the very weak could be stomped on. So there's that prudential judgment that in these discussions, ultimately, as the late Father John Richard Newhouse would say, the church should be the moderator of the debate. Yeah, and that is absolutely right. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said it that way because the, the presumption sometimes in some circles is that because the state is supposed to be, uh, is responsible with protecting the needs of the weak, that the only way for the state to secure right, the safety of the weak is by the, state in, by the state inserting itself into the lives of the people. Rather, the other approach would be to foster, let's say, the principle of subsidiarity so that the state is, is uh, giving incentives for citizens to help the weak rather than the state doing itself. And in, and in the case of the health care debate, the danger there is – because we're violating, let's say, the principle of subsidiarity, you create a situation where a group of doctors in Washington, D.C., for instance, can set up uh, parameters that would deny uh, a procedure for a girl in Kansas City in the name of protecting everybody, protecting the most people, protecting the statistical average or something like that. 
but it ignores the needs of the individual at the local level. And there is no system that could possibly exist that would take into account all of those needs. So in the name of helping the weak, we end up sometimes, because of the sheer size, let's say, of the, the state intervention, hurting the weak. The weak are the people who are most important. That's why the principle of subsidiarity, when we look at this question of, of the political community, is, is so very important. And the compendium makes it clear that, that that is important. And when you get to paragraph 412, for instance, the, the compendium starts talking about excessive uh, bureaucracy. Uh, it says, excessive bureaucratization is contrary to the vision that arises when institutions become complex in their organization and pretend to manage every area at hand. In the end, these institutions lose their effectiveness as a result of an impersonal functionalism, an overgrown bureaucracy, unjust private interests, and an all-too-easy and generalized disengagement from a sense of duty. The role of those working in public administration is not to be conceived as impersonal or bureaucratic, but rather as an act of generous assistance for citizens undertaken with a spirit of service. That service is lost when you have these huge efforts, right, to try to take care of the weak, and, and thus the importance of the principle of subsidiarity. Pope Francis has said that for us to do nothing as members of the church could be something that could be deemed equivalent to the actions of Pontius Pilate. Right. To wash our hands of where the society is going. And that's a tendency, I think, in, 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 in human nature, but we see it in Catholic circles where it's, it's a kind of let's circle the wagons kind of attitude, let, let the country go to wherever the country's going to, but I, my family and my group of friends, we're going to be okay or we're going to go off and be our own thing. And, and there's a certain aspect of prudence there, too, that, that, that's, that's true. But we have to be very careful that we don't behave as Pontius Pilate did, as Pope Francis said, that we don't simply wash our hands. And the reason we have to be careful about that is not because we, uh, we, we don't have an obligation to protect our families. Of course we do, and protect our own souls. But we have an obligation to, to help the poor, to protect the weak. That's an obligation as well. And when we turn that over right, to those who we already believe um, are, uh, are failing in any number of different ways, then, then we wash our hands of the injustices that are being done against the weak. Just as Pontius Pilate washed his hand of the injustice, he knew, he knew what was happening against Christ Jesus. You know, and another thing here, too, is I think that needs to be said is uh, when we talk about participation and being involved in the process, and, and especially in a democratic process, uh, participation doesn't necessarily mean running for office. It doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, just just voting or something like that. It also means helping transform our culture, and this is part of, of the danger of washing our hands, right? Sometimes we want to remove our families away from interaction with the community because we're afraid of how our children will be corrupted by this or that idea or... Um, or, or how we're afraid of, of being too influenced by secular culture, and there are those dangers there. But we ignore sometimes the, the positive effect that our families can have on our culture. Uh, the Compendium talks about, when we talk about democracy, uh, democracy cannot function well. And even our founding fathers said the same thing. It can't function well if we have a people who are completely vicious, right? We have no virtue. We have no sense of what's right and wrong. Um, 
if we can start to inject within our cultures then, our, in our communities, in our broader communities, the sense of, of living a life of virtue, it's a basic civic virtue, those, those things that, that, that transcend uh, the more fundamentally things of, of Catholic or Christianity, uh, but even things that go back to Cicero and Aristotle, that just a sense of, of virtue. If we can begin to inject that back into culture, that's participating in society as well. And that's, that's a way to, to participate and, and, and to, to avoid washing our hands. Uh, because if we remove ourselves altogether, if we remove the example of virtuous life from the rest of society, then, again, we're washing our hands as Pontius Pilate did. We'll be continuing our discussion on this particular chapter of the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, Chapter 8, in our next discussion. Thank you so much, Omar, for leading us up to this point. My pleasure. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.